Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Snuff puppets, the larger-than-life, deliciously grotesque Melbourne Puppet Company, are celebrating their 30th anniversary with uh, the world premiere of a new show called Swamp. I'm joined in the studio by Andy Freer, who is the CEO and Artistic Director of Snuff Puppets. Andy, um, should I burst into song to sing th- Happy Birthday <laughs> to Snuffies? Kind of? No, let's keep it. Let's keep it. Low-key. Okay, yeah. okay. But 30 years is mm. a significant anniversary for an independent company, a staunchly independent company with a really strong and defined and not necessarily commercial aesthetic. How have Snuffies made it to 30 years? Well, thank you for that um, summation of the company. Um, it's what I'm quite proud of is the fact that we've remained kind of our lo-fi, non-commercial, independent kind of radical um, ways ever since we, we started back in the, the late, oh, late, early 90s, <laughs> 92. Um, yeah, so it's kind of sticking to those principles of kind of not bending and not kind of, kind of um, feeling like we can do what we want. And theatre for me is always about kind of ex- uh, experimentation and expression and just going out there and, and trying things. And, and we've just continued to do that right up till now. So One of the things that Snuffies have tried to do and in my eye done really successfully is, as I said, there's something deliciously grotesque about some of some of what the company does, not yep. all of it. Yep. Uh, I mean, kind of giant birds strolling around, not grotesque. Yep. Giant human bodies with kind of intestines crawling around yep. or grotesque. eyeballs blinking, deliciously grotesque. But... Everything that Snuff Puppets do as a company, whether it's grotesque, whether it's playful, talk to us about what defines the Snuff Puppets aesthetic. Mm. It is the uh, very um, DIY, rough, handmade, in-your-face, on-the-street um, kind of intervention into, into public life. I suppose I found theatre when I was young to be quite um, being indoors in a, in, a, in a dark space, sitting in the seat, and you know the whole idea of the fourth wall was just kind of immediately um, clear to me. And I suppose when you're outdoors and on the street, which we most often are, um, there is no wall, and we're just we're free to roam and free to play and free to kind of turn people's lives for that moment a little bit upside down and a little bit kind of into a world that they would have never expected and that's what I find delicious about the idea of being able to get into people's heads with these kind of giant dolls that look like they could be made almost by themselves like seeing someone oh I could make that you can see the paint marks and the the seams and everything so it's not like this smooth kind of polished kind of image or it's not also not like a very um we're discussing this how we make our puppets we don't use computer um programs we don't kind of do much design we basically just sculpt and build so we're kind of very much an art making company we make art with our puppets and the creation of them is an art process so 
And the puppets that you make range from body parts to giant figures uh, who people may well have seen just recently at the Melbourne Fringe Parade, for example, marking the, the 40th anniversary of Fringe to animals and objects there's and as you say there is something kind of attractively homemade about them it Mm. there's why do snuff puppets though reject the kind of slick side of design and aesthetically i think that's just everywhere and suppose that's the standard so um and we can't really afford to kind of create things like that and my personal aesthetic is for a, a much more rough, hand-finished look. So I kind of, you know, celebrate it and kind of... I often say to people when we're building, you know, close enough is good enough, you know, don't worry, it's OK. You know, people aren't really looking at all these kind of fine, fine details. They're kind of more about looking at the whole whole image and the whole kind of experience in that moment. And talk to us about the experience of Snuff Puppets. The, mm. We've talked about the aesthetic. What about the emotion that Snuff Puppets try to capture or or um, inspire in audiences? Um, it's an old term that I've used a lot, but it's the sus- suspension of disbelief. So it's like we have these puppets. So all our puppets, you don't see a human operating them. So all our puppeteers are inside the puppets. So you kind of are completely hidden and we take great lengths to actually hide the human form. So when an audience see a puppet, they kind of, in their head, they see a cow, this giant cow walking down the street with a, you know, four friends and a butcher. And they kind of know it's not a real cow, but they kind of can't see a human, so they kind of are sent into this, like, liminal space maybe where they don't know really what to expect. But then the cow will come up to them and nuzzle them and then maybe turn around and pee on them, and it's, it all becomes quite hysterical quite quickly. So, Why hide the puppeteer? Um, it's just the illusion to create the full illusion. Um, it's it's a kind of a little bit of magic, I suppose. It's like someone is completely hidden in there and you can't see where the legs are and where their head is. So it's just, yeah, a, a kind of an elaborate illusion. <laughs> So for the 30th anniversary of Snuff Puppets, the new show Swamp mm. is premiering uh, tonight. Uh, performance is also on Friday and Saturday at the Footscray Drill Hall, which is the home of, of Snuffies. Yep. It's sold out, um, yep. which for anybody listening going, oh, it sounds exciting, I should go and celebrate. Well, you can try. I recommend rocking up at the door, getting your name on the standby list, and people always book tickets. And there's a family drama, or the car runs out of petrol, or they just exactly, forget. Yeah. And so there will be tickets. But what have you wanted to create for the the thirtieth anniversary, and particularly for Swamp? Well, Swamp is um, our newest, as you said, now newest um, work. Um, we create works that take us maybe three to five years. So this work has actually been in. In the process for five years, we've had numerous cancellations over COVID time. So I think it was meant to premiere in 2020 and, you know, every year it was like an opportunity, but we just had to put it off. Um, and Swamp is an indoor show. It's a full full indoor show with um, lights and sound and projections and it's in our drill hall, in our space. So our space is a 100-year-old army Army Hall in Footscray and where we do everything. We build, we um, have our offices, we have all our rehearsal and performance spaces there. But we've actually turned it now into a fully functioning, we're calling it Snuff Hub. 
So it's like a we've got lights permanently rigged now. We've got curtains. We've got a floor. We've got we'll hide some seating, but it's very exciting that we're actually Swamp will be the inaugural show for our um, for the Snuff, Snuff Puppet. Puppet. Yeah, why do something indoors? Given that Snuff Puppets historically have been associated with outdoor events, with the freedom of open space, the freedom to wander and interact with the public. Why yeah. try to constrain it? I suppose our, our theatre is... Um, performing indoors for us is is a very kind of special and interesting place to be where you can control all the lighting and all the, the effects. I mean, we've made a number of shows indoors, so it's just... a it's a, lot, a bigger kind of task, I suppose, and just having that whole complete control of the whole atmosphere, sound and lighting and, and everything. Given the, the kind of rough and ready aesthetic mm. of Snuff Puppets, mm. do you want to extend that to indoor shows in terms of lighting and sound? Do you want a kind of roughness to that as well? Or are you looking to kind of, I don't know, counterbalance the the that rough and ready look of the puppets with a slightly slicker staging? Well, we have the, some of the great great technicians, lighting and sound people, sound designers. Um, but what we do and how we rehearse and how we make work is very much on the floor, um, improvising with the with the musicians playing along. Um, the lighting, we're kind of a little bit like oh, not too much LED. Let's let's keep the tungsten lights on and and. Um, but we're also working with projections now. This is our first show with full scale massive projection screen on a scrim and that's very exciting so that's a kind of a next level technology for us but um but all the images on the on the projections are all um hand-drawn oil paint so um it's all kind of mixing so maintaining the that kind of that yeah. tradition even yes. while advancing it exactly yeah. yeah yeah um and is the opportunity then to create kind of visual backdrops like that again creating a more immersive world than is possible outdoors on the street. Oh, completely, yeah. And we've found just with the kind of... When you start projecting paint and and and, and hand-drawn things, you kind of immediately get this sense of you're kind of in the painting, you're in the world. Um, you kind of immediately can see when something is computer-manipulated... Computer I suppose, as opposed to a kind of a photo of a painting that is then projected. So I think as an audience, my hope is that you kind of feel like you are absorbed into this kind of whole world, a whole kind of complete world that the puppets live in, but also the imagery and the lights and the curtains. And I feel like that's how I describe our shows are like worlds, whole complete worlds. So everything in that world, whether it be lighting, sound, puppets, even the seating is kind of part of this kind of experience and world the audience are, are in at that moment. Now, Andy, you're not just the artistic director and CEO. You're the founder of Snuff Puppets. You've yeah. been there right from the start for yeah. 30 years. Yeah. It's kind of unusual in the arts for somebody to stay for that duration mm. for a company. Uh, people some will found companies and move on. Mm. But what is it that has kept you in love with <laughs> Snuff Puppets as a company for three decades? Um, it's just a, an amazing kind of company where um, artists and performing artists are kind of a particular kind of artist and performing artist who isn't afraid to kind of go rough and ready and, and be 
kind of out there and and all these artists that come to the company are kind of so inspiring that we kind of are like a collective in a way where people come like I've been working with artists for 20 years like 30 years some people are still with us and and they're on their journeys but we kind of all work together and it's a it's basically a fun and hilarious kind of um, job and an experience to to have done it for this long and over that time over 30 years mm. you've been to what 37 different countries around the world so yeah. uh, chile belgium the republic of the congo poland portugal romania mm. singapore taiwan thailand obviously mm. covid meant that international touring ground to a halt yeah. what does the international scene look like for snuff puppets next year and beyond well we just actually had our our tour this year to um portugal switzerland Poland and Germany. Um, it was just scraped together in the last minute, and we just had to do it because it was gigs that were postponed from the from the past. So it is a, a huge part of our experience, and it, and again, it's like we're going off into these wild outback places in in the world and meeting artists again, and also meeting interested people or people who wouldn't call themselves artists but are kind of keen to learn the craft of giant puppetry and, and outdoor performance in the in the snuff puppet style. So we do workshops and we work with um, communities in all these countries and we just kind of continue this kind of, yeah, deliciously grotesque and fun kind of human art experience. And given that I asked you about what sustains you or has mm. sustained you over 30 years, I would imagine that one of the constant reoccurring joys which mm. does sustain you and does kind of feed back into mm. not only you and the company mm. is the audience response to the work. Kind mm. of seeing little kids delighting mm. in kind of giant grotesque body parts crawling yeah. around in yeah. front of them or giant birds or animals mm. in, in Swamp, the new show. There's a thylacine puppet, for yeah. example, which yeah. is, I believe, a, a, a recent addition to the Snuff Puppets family. So yeah. that audience energy, mm. you must get a lot from that. Yeah, it is. It is a buzz, and I suppose with children, they have this kind of purity of their of mind and imagination, so they can immediately cut through all the kind of adult bullshit that we kind of drag around with us. And and but then there are you know adults with you know you know child like imaginations. I mean, I feel still quite like a child myself. And um, but yeah, it is this kind of visceral interactive physical kind of way we we do relate through our puppets to our audiences that is really yeah it's kind of very immediate and in the moment and very kind of exciting yeah snuff puppets new show swamp uh part of their 30th anniversary celebrations is happening tonight tomorrow night and saturday night at the footscray drill hall 395 Barclay Street, Footscray. It has sold out, but I reckon rock up if you, particularly if you live in the area, uh, rather than driving, say, three hours across town. Um, but there's always a chance that people will not show up or tickets will be cancelled. So get in contact with Snuff Puppets, snuffpuppets.com or rock up on the night, tonight, tomorrow or Saturday night, to uh, get on the waiting list, the standby list, to see Swamp, the new Snuff Puppet show. I've been chatting with founder, CEO, artistic director, Andy Freer. Andy, thanks for coming in and happy anniversary. Thanks so much, Richard. Triple R. 
time to introduce my next guest. Leslie Harding is the Artistic Director of Heidi Museum of Modern Art, which is not just uh, a significant institution here in Melbourne, but nationally significant in terms of the role that Heidi played and continues to play in the celebrating and honouring the legacy of the Heidi Circle of Artists, of modernism in art and so much more. Leslie, always a pleasure to have you in the studio. Thanks very much, Richard. Nice to see you. So the latest Heidi exhibition has been, uh, not surprisingly, several years in the making. Any major survey exhibition which involves borrowing artworks from other institutions takes time to plan. This one, however, interrupted by COVID, which makes the fact that then major institutions a year or two later were still like, oh, no, we're still fine for you to borrow that particular sculpture or that particular artwork. That's quite remarkable, as is the artist that the exhibition is focused on. Uh, the exhibition is Barbara Hepworth in Equilibrium and focused on the British modernist sculptor, Barbara Hepworth. For people who don't know Hepworth's work, why is she such a significant figure in the world of sculpture? She made Barbara Hepworth made great advancements uh, in terms of sculptural practice in the in the mid twentieth century, um, partly because she was working abstractly, but principally because she pioneered the um, the piercing of the form. Uh, she was a direct carver early on in her career, and you know when you're working in a reductive way, um, you've got to have a, a great amount of foresight, one false move, and you know the sculpture's over. Um, but the, the great innovation that she um, made was to actually pierce the the mass, pierce the form, and use space as part of her sculptural language and sort of fill space with meaning, if that makes sense. So she it was a landmark, and um, even though it's often been attributed to her her colleague and rival Henry Moore, um, history books have since corrected themselves, and um, she's she's acknowledged now for sort of the advancements and the progress that she made in terms of the way that sculpture might be seen today. Why is something that in, on one level seems so simple, putting a hole in the middle of your sculpture so that people can see through it and, and, see the, and really see the 3D nature of the object, why was that such a radical move at the time? Um, it was just it was a precursor to um, what we call uh, constructed sculpture, so you know sculpture that's made out of disparate elements and brought together. Um, so it was a very significant thing in terms of you know, opening up space and sort of laying the groundwork for um, that next sort of shift in in sculptural practice. But for Hepworth too, she was very interested. She was. Um, her work was very much related to nature in, in one way or another and she was very interested in the landscape, particularly after she moved to Cornwall. She lived in St Ives for the latter part of her career. Um, and there was this wonderful connection to um, the ancient ne Neolithic stones and the, in the environment in, in that area. And there's one in particular um, that has a... Uh, it's a crickstone. It has a hole through the centre. It has very significant meaning for people from, in ancient times. They used to pass a broken leg through it in order for it to be fixed. Um, you know, if whatever ailment, they would go to this particular stone. And so um, there's no coincidence, really, that Hepworth sort of saw um, the ancient sort of medicinal and spiritual practices of, of people in times past and sort of connected it to, to um, sculptural practice and, and contemporary times. Now... From what I understand of Hepworth's practice, that connection with landscape and the environment goes back considerably further than her moving to St Ives in Cornwall. It uh, goes back to her childhood. Her father was a surveyor, and I understand she accompanied him and kind of was 
introduced to the, the, the significance, the importance of the landscape very early in her life. Yeah, I think um, lots of hours in the car with her father traversing a very you know, rugged terrain and lots of rocky outcrops and things um, in West Riding where she, where she grew up. And um, I think she had developed an early fascination for textures and forms and shapes and so I guess that fed into her desire to, even though she worked relatively figuratively at the very early part of her career, to work towards um, abstraction um, fairly quickly in the 1930s. So it was a foundational thing for her, that those trips with her father. Um, but I think, too, Richard, that um, often sculptors are born sculptors and um, they think three-dimensionally. And I think it's an extraordinary skill to be able to look at a piece of marble or a piece of wood and envisage a finished sculpture at the end of it and then work your way backwards towards achieving that that form. Um, so it, it starts, you know, pretty much in childhood as, as a lot of creative skills do. Now, this exhibition, Barbara Hepworth in Equilibrium at Heidi, is the latest in a series of exhibitions that uh, Heidi has presented, which are celebrating the, the body of work of modernist female artists. Clearly, uh, for decades, the, the scales were tipped towards the stories and the art of men. How many more decades do you think it will be before the balance has been corrected? Because some people will perhaps say, oh, not another female modernist artist at the focus of Heidi, whereas I'm thinking, well, yes, we need to have many, many more because so many have been overlooked. And I suspect looking at the walls of some of our major institutions, female artists continue to be overlooked. How long does it take to readjust the scales in the world of art history and art canon? Well, I wish it wasn't this way, Richard, but um, we do our best at Heidi to um, rehabilitate female artists, mainly so that um, new generations can can see their work, particularly of the modernists. But we also celebrate mid-career and late-career uh, contemporary artists too through our program. It's a real focus for us, and um, in some ways, it's it's also acknowledging that there might be a gap through other what other public institutions program. So it's in part that. Um, I think we've got a way to go. Um, the Know My Name campaign certainly helped shuffle things along um, at a fairly you know, good um, rate of knots. And I suppose we're, we've, we've been doing... Um, We've been uh, curating exhibitions of, of women artists you know, way before that. But um, look, hope, I hope in my career lifetime um, that we'll see some sort of um, equilibrium, I guess. Yeah. Now, in terms of equilibrium, uh, one of the things that Heidi also does is often then partner and pair exhibitions. So, yes, people can go to Heidi uh, from now until the 13th of March to see the work of Barbara Hepworth. But then there's often also a complementary exhibition, perhaps responding to work or exploring the themes of those works by more contemporary artists. Yes, well, we, exactly. And we often um, we like to expand out the idea of a solo exhibition into something that's more thematic. It's kind of extraordinary to me that this is the first time that Barbara Hepworth has, has had a survey exhibition in Australia, given the influence that she had on Australian sculpture. So um, our companion exhibition in the Heidi Modern Building is called Whole, and it looks at that um, that landmark piercing of the form that we talked about earlier um, across the practice of international and local and contemporary art. Um, so there's a, a wide array of works that speak to um, this innovation and expand upon Barbara Hepworth's thinking in terms of the void or the whole being something that can be filled with meaning um, and that has a resonance um, beyond the picture plane itself. You mentioned that 
there hasn't been a major survey exhibition of Hepworth's work in Australia. Is that partially because some of, some of her most significant work is quite kind of monumental in terms of size and form? Yeah, as often happens, um, she worked in a domestic scale when she was doing her direct carving, and once she um, she graduated to working with bronze, you know, the sky's the limit really in terms of um, how big your form your forms can be, provided you've got assistance and a foundry that's um, happy to work with you. I mean, it becomes very expensive at this time, um, but public commissions conventionally are in things like bronze in order to be exhibited outside and to you know withstand the elements and that kind of thing. And for Hepworth, it was a way of trans translating uh, forms that she'd already um, devised and come up with and exhibited um, onto a much larger scale and to a much larger audience. So that, I think that part of um, working on a public scale or civic scale um, was really gratifying for, for Barbara Hepworth. What do you think John and Sunday Reid, the founders of Heidi, would have made of Hepworth's work? Did they know her? Did they know her work? They must have known her because they um, they read all of Herbert Reid's books and Herbert Reid was a friend of Barbara Hepworth and often appeared in his books. Um, so yeah, it, it, undoubtedly... Um, the Reeds would have liked her work, I'm, I feel sure about that. And interestingly, I mean, this is something I've been reflecting on as we've been installing the exhibition. John and Sunday were complete contemporaries with Barbara Hepworth. You know, she was born in 1903, as was John Reed. Um, so they were, they were living in a sort of parallel universe on the other side of the world, but interested in the same sorts of ideas. So very interested in, um, in modernism, in the sort of utopian aspects of modernism and in, interested in um, you know, advancing a modernist language that had a particularly local idiom. Hepworth, for Hepworth it was in Cornwall. Um, for the Reeds and the Heidi Circle it was about translating something that was an international art language into a local idiom. Let's talk about some of the specific works in the exhibition. There's one piece, the title has unfortunately escaped my memory at the moment, which some have suggested is an embodiment of her love and perhaps guilt about the birth of twins, which she uh, placed into other, gave other people the, the responsibility to raise, for example. Um, what fascinates me about that work is then I can also see a direct reference to the Cornish landscape, to, uh, to dolmens, for example, the, the Neolithic uh, burial chambers, which are often two pieces of stone with a third supporting a capstone or, or sometimes three pieces of stone supporting a capstone. So there's, yes, you can read it as a, as a personal work, and I sometimes suspect that the work of female artists is much more associated with somehow with, with personal stories than, than the work of men. But when I look at that work, I see that the, the Neolithic landscape of Cornwall clearly reflected as well. Yes, well, she actually had true triplets Richard and she had another a toddler at the time so she really had her hands full and um, yeah, she was very devoted to her family, Hepworth, but at the same time adamant that um, she shouldn't stop her career and she'd grasp every opportunity to make work. So particularly when the twins were young and she was living um, in Carbis Bay near St Ives in Cornwall, um, she, didn't have a, she didn't have any family support, for example, so she did place the, the, the children for a period of time in a nursery school. And she, in fact, she ran a nursery school herself um, in order to make ends meet for for a period as well and um, there is a, of course for any parent whether you're um, the mother or father there is a sense of, of guilt when you entrust somebody else with the care of your children um, but she was um, really forthright in um, wanting the same sorts of opportunities as her partner Ben Nicholson who kept continued working in the studio and um, at that particular time particularly when uh, when uh, materials, art materials were a little bit scarce, she decided that she would start drawing 
showering in the evenings. And in fact, we have one of the works from that period in the exhibition. And it always fascinates me to see the drawings of sculptors because they draw like sculptors. They, they draw almost as if they're imagining things in three dimensions. But that was a way of her sort of exercising her creative bent and um, finding solutions for the, the ideas that she had um, that, that she could then pick up again by the time she was able to... had a bit more time on her hands and could get back into the studio and actually sculpt again. Yeah. Now, she was sculpting with stone. She was sculpting with wood. And as you mentioned uh, later in the career, bronze... Uh, there's a work, Sculpture with Colour and Strings, as an image of it on the, the Heidi website. Let's talk about the strings, this notion that the the piercing, the, the hole through the, the sculpture that has been created, which, as you said earlier, was a significant step. Is she trying to obscure the hole? Is she accentuating it? by obscuring it? What's going on there? Well, the strings are a really interesting thing because obviously there are allusions to music um, when you see that kind of um, articulation of, you know, very carefully um, expressed um, in terms of, you know, diameter and dimension, um, string forms that form part of the sculpture. I mean, there's a sense too, I mean, I haven't really read this necessarily, but it occurs to me that there's a a sense too that it relates to needlework um, because um, when you look very closely at some of the sculptures, there is a sort of a threading through, almost like a stitching of the string. Um, But the other part of it was that um, she was very good friends with an artist called Nam Garbo, who was a Russian constructivist artist. He went to work in the Bauhaus and and, um, um, immigrated to the UK before going to America. And he also moved down to St Ives. And he was a very important friend and influence on Hetworth. And he he actually pioneered the use of strings as a way of creating another dimension in his artworks. So Hetworth's, I would have to say, is in some instances a much more domestic um, utilisation of the thread. It's actually fisherman's cotton or, you know, netting line, um, which has a, an obvious relationship uh, to, to, to where Cornwall, she's living yeah. at, the, at the time. Um, but for her, it was also about creating some sort of a, a productive tension in her sculptures. And there's one work um, in particular in the exhibition that really references two hills um, nearby where where Hepworth and and Nicholson and the children were living. And the strings sort of cross over each other across the form. And it's sort of like a a cup shape, if you like. And um, it's about... It's, I mean, this is one of the reasons why we call the exhibition Equilibrium. It's about a productive tension um, and and sort of translating the way that you feel when you're traversing the landscape into an abstract sculptural form. So the strings serve a really important purpose to kind of connect the two hills and almost um, sort of mimic the, the human figure walking across the landscape. So there are lots of, um, lots of ways of reading the strings, um, but I think everybody brings their own sort of interpretation to them. Aside from that, um, they create an, another very beautiful dimension to her sculptures, and of course, there's no surprise, of course that those works that have colour in them and that have the the strings um, are among her most uh, famous and revered works. Leslie, one of the things I wanted to ask about in terms of this exhibition, you've done something a little bit different with the presentation of it as well. We're not looking at white walls, for example. You've hired uh, an architectural practice, Studio Bright, to design 
the setting for the exhibition. Look, yeah, we did. Um, it makes a lot of sense to me, Richard, to work with a woman architect um, or an architecture firm run by a woman. Um, and in fact, Mel and a, and a team of people um, from Studio Bright worked on the, the exhibition design. It's their first exhibition design. I, I think we probably threw them in at the deep end because there's nothing like um, sculpture from interna international institutions with loads of restrictions around them um, to kind of sink your teeth into and, and um, you know, and dive in the deep end. Um, but they've done a beautiful job. I mean, they did their research and really understood, um, looking at the works that we'd selected for the exhibition, um, understood how to create an environment that wasn't um, wasn't too passive, wasn't over overly domineering, but was sympathetic to um, to Hepworth's work, which is all very kind of earthy, natural colours, of course, even the bronzes. And um, what they've done is um, has, they've generated um, a sort of conditions for looking at the exhibition which um, are, look in very incredibly tranquil and very beautiful. So there's soft tones, there are curtains in the show um, and reveals to the outside. Um, Hepworth always liked to understand and see her works in the landscape in relation to the landscape and the environment. So there are glimpses out into the Heidi landscape as well. I think they've done an incredible job and we're absolutely delighted with the exhibition. The exhibition as we said, is Barbara Hepworth in Equilibrium, showing at the Heidi Museum of Modern Art until the 13th of March. Heidi is located at 7 Templestowe Road, Bulleen. And for more info, jump online, www.heidi.com.au. I've been speaking with Leslie Harding, the Artistic Director of Heidi Museum of Modern Art. Leslie, always a pleasure. Thanks Thank for coming in. Thank you very in. much. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Now we're going to go from modernist sculpture to modernist poetry. We're going to talk about the wasteland, and I'm joined in the studio by director Kirsten von Bibra. Uh, and actor and performer Ray Swan, who is the founder of Identity Theatre. Identity Theatre are presenting uh, T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. Welcome to you both. Thank Hi, you. Richard. Great to be here. Um, we'll start with you, Ray, given that uh, this is your theatre company. That's it. Um, why are Identity Theatre performing a piece of modernist poetry uh, what, published in 1922 as opposed to performing a traditional piece of theatre? A hundred years ago it was written and it's strangely um, relevant even to today, you know, when we see uh, so much of what's going on in the world, the sort of cultural wasteland that I think many of us experience and uh, I think to us we were just really interested and excited to bring this work um, back to audiences. For me personally, I think it was in 2020 during the lockdown, you know, the stultifying conditions of the of being a Melbourneite and, you know, walking the, the 5K limit of our existence, it felt like, and seeking solace in Netflix and others. But I also found a real comfort, strangely, and release in poetry, and in particular uh, The Wasteland, which is known for its bleakness. But I also found joy, joy of discovery, joy of the different voices, the different uh, rhythmical patterns, the different language and just that, that, just that, I guess that thing of just you know art being something that's transformative and, and brings something out of us. It requires something of us. And strangely, in even in lockdown, I felt you know having a challenge, having a quest, having something to be drawn out of me was was really important. And from there, um, you know, I knew of Kirsten's uh, 
uh, work as a theatre director and, and we'd, we'd done a little bit of work in a, in a different context a number of years ago and I was really pleased that you know, Kirsten could join the project. Kirsten, if art requires something from us, what does directing a poem require <laughs> from you as opposed to directing a script? Mm, I think... Um First up, trying to understand it, which is very challenging in well, a poem. People have been doing that for a hundred years. <laughs> yes, in a poem like this, which is such a sort of enigmatic poem, it's um, full of illusions, and one realizes you have to sort of look up the multiple references that um, Eliot draws upon. You know, he—it's interesting psychologically because he really was trying to. Um, present a very desolate vision of a, of a civilization in crisis and I, therefore I think it's always a very timely poem because, you know, even right this moment there's been a lot of hardship and difficulties that we're experiencing and so he wrote it in the wake of World War I and also in the wake of um, the Spanish... Uh, flu, the influenza, and we've just come out of, well, still coming out of um, the pandemic. And so, you know, it's interesting, you, you know, to, to, to talk about these specifics of what does it take for a poem, it's understanding the illusions. So he was decrying the sort of demise of cultural knowledge, and therefore he wrote this poem so full of cultural knowledge, and therefore the challenge for me as a director is to really um, try to unlock the the meaning and so you've got references to Shakespeare, to Dante, to Wagner, to Edmund Spencer, to so many different people um, and that when you actually unlock the meaning you go oh I see. Now of course an audience are not going to be there able to unlock all these illusions but I think if we understand them there will be a sense of um, the concepts imparted through Ray's performance. One of the things that intrigues me about The Wasteland as a work too is not only that, yes, it was a, a timely work because of the experience that it was writing about, as you say, coming out of a pandemic, we're coming out of a pandemic, there are resonances across time. It's also almost as much a postmodern uh, poem as a modernist poem mm. because of the way it is the, the the different literary allusions that are being referenced, that are being drawn in. Yes, you've got Shakespeare and other so-called highbrow works, but he was also listening to popular song, for yeah. example, and drawing in influences there as well. So in the same way that an episode of The Simpsons will one moment <laughs> reference Shakespeare, the next minute a pop song, uh, T.S. Eliot was doing the same thing 100 years ago. Yeah, there's a great part in uh, part three where that that happens exactly where... It seems quite high, the, the poetry, the, the form, the alliteration and the, the techniques he's using. And then he turns in the, in the poem and he quotes a, an Australian ballad, uh, which is the moon shone bright on Mrs Porter and on her daughter. They wash their feet in soda water. It's done as a song. But it's just, it just crashes against you know, the, the, um, you know, the white Ionian gold and the beautiful you know, architecture of Christopher Wren. We have these you know, kind of you know, Aussies singing this kind of ditty in the same in the same space. Now, I'm not necessarily expecting you to sing for us, Ray, but <laughs> perhaps for people listening who haven't heard any of the Wasteland before, yeah. could you give us uh, give us a taste? So it's a great little uh, section which I think works on a number of different levels. So I'll, I'll read that and maybe we can unpack a little bit of some of our discoveries around it. Who is the third who walks always beside you? When I count, there are only you and I together. But when I look ahead, up the white road, there is always another one walking beside you. 
gliding, wrapped in a brown mantle, hooded. I do not know whether a man or woman, but who is that on the other side of you? Yes, so... um, (laughs) Start unpacking. Start unpacking. Well, first reference point is a story about Shackleton and his survival um, when he was exploring in Antarctica. And apparently him and two of his companions managed to survive a very dire situation and be rescued. And when they got to the point of being rescued, having hauled a boat and survived extraordinary conditions... One of the companions went up to Shackleton and said, Hey, boss, did you notice that there was somebody else travelling with us? And all three of them had this extraordinary experience of feeling like they were guided or, or sort of saved by this presence that kept vigilance over them and kept them going and gave them hope. So hence the reference to who is the other in uh, along the white road because it would have been you know the snow-covered area. But um, I think also there were other existential references too. I think, yeah, and for me there's the, the reference to the work in the New Testament talking about I think the road to Emmaus and seeing Christ on the road, the apostles, is he alive or not, what happened. And But I think the other one that's internal to the poem is that all the way through the poem there's this kind of question that I think Eliot is asking of himself but also of us, which is who, who is the other part of me? Like trying to reconcile with the parts of ourselves that perhaps aren't examined, that are that he sort of represses. And I think, you know, biographically we know that that was something that Eliot over time really worked a lot with, you know, who he was, how he felt about things, his relationships are quite problematic to, you know, to um, the people that he knew in his life at different times. And I think this is another example in the poem where he's trying to ask, who is that on the other side of you, of me, at the same time? In terms of an audience coming to see uh, the performance of The Wasteland, it feels to me like you could almost give them two performances. You could perform the poem for them uh, and then you could give the annotated version. Kind of, uh, and uh, in terms of that is something that a theatre production can do, for example, you could, you could use slides to project can it, this is a reference to, which would distract the audience from what they are seeing and what they are hearing. You wouldn't want to do that. But, Kirsten, in terms of how you are using the art of theatre to add weight and potency to an already potent poem. Mm. Talk to us about how you've approached that. Uh, pretty much through the, the venue itself. We're performing it out at Jack's Magazine in Maribyrnong and it's this 64-metre-long warehouse where they used to store the munitions during World War One and World War Two. It's a heritage-listed building. It's quite beautiful and it's a sort of big bluestone building sunk into a mound of earth. Uh, in case of explosion. Um, and so we've created an ambulant performance where at t- there are little sections that you poi- pause and uh, sit down and then other times you're moving. So the poem itself is in five parts and so we divide the five, pa- five parts through the space and um, it's got very atmospheric lighting of, 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 of um, a certain limitation because of um, the electricity supply within the heritage building itself. But uh, it's, it's very atmospheric and I think it really does help keep the interest. I think also you raise an interesting question because it, you know, begs the question of how performative does it become? And there's a lot of characters in the piece, and so Ray's terrific at sort of transformation, and there are a lot of different voices and characters. I mean, I think Ted Hughes said that it really is a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a drama for voices, and um, there are many different characters. 
So I think it does hold our interest. Ray, is there the, the risk that it will become too performative, that you will slip into, not parody, but uh, detract from the, f the, the focus of the poem by trying to give it too much life as a performer? I think so. I think the, the key uh, to unlocking it is there's a rhetoric and there's an argument that is like a, uh, there is a philosophical inquiry that's going on, I think, that is the centre line of the poem. And so I think coming back to that is really important. The, um, the estate are also really clear about, you know, um, how you are able to recite the poem and, and some of the, um, I guess, directions around that include really being, you know, having a focus on voice. And certainly in our preparations, a lot of it has been about voice and meaning. Um, there is another part of the show, which is an exhibition, which is in the second magazine. And we've got some incredible video work um, done by a guy called Thomas Flatman, who's got these kind of animated images from the poem and it's set to music by Melbourne musician Andrew Duffield and that's quite an immersive experience and the idea is that once you've actually seen and heard the performance of The Wasteland you can then take a little bit of time in the other magazine and go and sort of talk and uh, listen and watch uh, some of the other sort of arts responses so we have separated them out. And obviously having a director like Kirsten as well uh, that's your job to stop the work becoming too performative. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. Okay, so Identity Theatre's uh, production of T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland is happening, as you heard, at Jack's Magazine, which is located via Pipe Makers Park in Maribyrnong. And if you go to Identity Theatre's website, which is identitytheatre.com, not only will you find booking details about how to book for The Wasteland, running from the 10th today... Uh, through to the 19th of November. Uh, so that's uh, this Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then next week, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Uh, but as I said, if you go to identitytheatre.com, you can book for the performance of The Wasteland, and you can also find a very handy PDF which will give you directions on how to find and get to Jack's Magazine once you've got to Pipe Makers Park in Maribyrnong. So identitytheatre.com for details. Uh, if you are keen and intrigued to see Identity Theatre's production of The Wasteland, performed by Ray Swan and directed by Kirsten von Bibra, thank you both for joining us in the studio. Thanks, Richard. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. <laughs>